0: I always thought that MeUndies was that really cool underwear brand with the funny and crazy prints, but it wasn't until I actually tried them myself that I realized, holy crap, these are really comfortable. They are so comfortable that I don't even want to change my underwear. Well, we're not recommending you do that, but I forget that they're even on. And when I go in to get my underwear in the morning, I feel sorry for my old cotton boxer shorts because... They're not being used anymore because I just want to wear my me undies because they are so comfortable. And you're probably saying, Jimmy, you're exaggerating. No, I'm not exaggerating here. And you're probably saying, Jimmy, how can they be so comfortable? Well, they use a micro Model fabric, which is three times softer than regular cotton. I can't believe how soft these things are. And it's the exact fabric that you're going to want to have down there. Now, MeUndies has just launched a brand new membership. You can level up your top drawer with new MeUndies each month. Members will gain access to exclusive prints that no one else can get. They get special member pricing on every product MeUndies makes and you can switch styles or skip any month you want. Now, MeUndies has a great offer for my listeners here on ImprovNerd. For any first-time purchasers, when you purchase any MeUndies, you get 15% off and free shipping. Pretty high-tech with the sound effects, wouldn't you say? This is a no-brainer. Get 15% off a pair of the most comfortable undies you will ever put on. To get your 15% off your first pair, free shipping and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, Go to meundies.com slash improv nerd. That's meundies.com slash improv nerd. Jimmy, Jimmy Carrane, Jimmy Carrane's a nerd. Jimmy Coraine's an improv nerd. Jimmy Corain's a nerd. Oh Jimmy. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another great episode of Improv Nerd. Our guest today is Improv Legend Jeff Michelski. He was a founding member of the Second City ETC Theater in Chicago back in the 80s. He studied with Del Close. He started the Second City Training Center in Los Angeles. He is a master improv teacher and director and improviser. He directed Stephen Colbert. We talked to him about early Second City, Dell's influence on him, and how he's evolved as a teacher. No one is more passionate than Jeff Michelski when it comes to improvisation and how he uses Meisner techniques and viewpoints in his teaching. And we talked to him about some of his philosophies and what's important to him when he's teaching improv today. Before we get to the episode, I just want to say that I am so grateful that I'm getting this episode out because last Monday, I had... a my my back went out and it was, it was, it was awful. I mean, I, I, and, and I didn't do anything. It wasn't like I picked Betsy up or, you know, um, I used it in the wrong way. All of a sudden my back went out and, uh, it was this back spasm and it was really, um, it was really, really, really painful. In this interview that I do with Jeff, I'm, you know, like I, I didn't say anything, Um, during the interview, but I just want to let you know, like, I was like in excruciating pain. And it was before I was going to the the acupuncture, which has helped. And also um, reading this book uh, by John Sarno and watching some videos about this Dr. John Sarno, who really believes that most back pain is caused by uh, repressed anger and repressed anxiety. And what our brain does is it instead of, you know, feeling those feelings, it wants us to feel pain and it causes back pain instead of us expressing or getting in touch with those emotions, because that would be too scary. And nobody is more afraid of anger than I am. So I just push mine down. And if you have it, I want to avoid it. Uh, all right, enough about me. You're going to love this episode with Jeff Michalski. Here it is, the Jeff Michalski episode. Enjoy. Jeff Michalski, thank you so much for being our guest on oh. Improvner. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I got to say this I'm a little nervous because you were one of my early teachers at Second City. Mm hmm. And I learned a lot. And I looked up to you not only as a teacher, but as a performer. I was back in the '80s, and I was 20. Wow! And you grew up in Chicago, yeah. one of five kids. Your dad was a police officer. Mm-hmm. How did your brother get you into improv? Um,
1: he was doing uh, workshops with Joe Forsberg up uh, the Players Workshop. Players right. Workshop, and uh, I'd gotten out of the Navy. Um. You know, I had one of those low draft numbers, and I enlisted in that. And, you know, I was kind of a funny guy, disruptive, funny, not not uh, Robin Williams-like, not trying to, not for the... Uh, I wasn't trying to entertain people. I was just entertaining people. And so he's driving me back from the airport, and he said, you ought to join Second City workshops.
0: Had you heard of Second City at this point?
1: Uh, yeah, my... Uh, uncle, and also he's my godfather, used to tape the WFMT things on reel-to-reel and play them for me. But
0: Which was a radio station here in Chicago, yes. and they would record the
1: shows at Second City. Right. And I didn't know who it was. You know, it was the same way that I was being introduced to Lenny Bruce and other people on reel-to-reels, basically, that my cousins collected. So, uh, I, you know, I didn't know who they were. I didn't know who Severn Darden was. I didn't know who any of those people were. It was just funny stuff. It, they could have been the Goonies for all I knew, right? Which I also, he also <laughs> played for me, right? So um, I enjoyed it, and uh, I still hadn't put it together even when my brother told me uh, about the workshop. So as soon as I walked in, I felt right at home. Uh, you know, people were laughing right away. I was... Participating, It was sort of like what I did, even before I walked in the door.
0: And then you, very quickly, like in a couple of months, you are performing at Second yeah. City. Well, not at Second City. I was performing at coffee shops
1: and stuff around. I did get hired at Second City when they had an emergency audition, because uh, a touring company had stayed in Cleveland to start their own group and Joe Bicerney who's a commercial actor. He yeah, did the, Joe Bicerney. He's the guy that came back. And when he came back,
0: they fired the messenger as well. So you got hired early at Second City yeah. and then you got fired the, by the end of the weekend. Okay. And then you go on to do Comedy Rangers, right? First the Saint Vitus Dancers. Mm-hmm. So the first
1: thing I did was I produced the show at the Grace Lutheran Church with uh, Larry Cove. I used my GI Bill instead of paying my Columbia College tuition. And I paid the actors, too. Uh, Bernadette Briquette, Larry Coven, Jim Fay, Eric Forsberg, uh, a girl named Lorna Abrams, I think, that I'd met because I did a play that uh, was up for a Jeff nomination called Rhymers of Eldridge. And um, we had coffee can lights and stuff and Tony Papaleo did a horror show where all the action took place off stage and we did a little sketch show. And uh uh that's where I met Bernadette and she's George Wentz's wife and uh, wasn't then and uh, Jim Fay, that's where we started the St. Fightest Dancers. We just went okay, let's, let's we went to the hall House and opened the show there. Got good reviews and uh when that was over, Jim said we didn't know what to do. He said, "Well, there's these comedy clubs out in the one in Lyons called the Comedy Womb, and there's another one in uh, uh, Rosemont called the Comedy Cottage." And, and so these were stand-up clubs. They're stand-up clubs, yeah. But we were the, kind of the first, also with the initial people playing there. So uh, uh, Emo too was there, but he was Emo Phillips. He yeah. was called. They called themselves Johnny Dark at first. And we said, there already is a Johnny Dark. You can't do that. And we kind of took him under our wing because he was kind of a, a weird duck. And he went through many incarnations. Phil Bufka, Bufka Phillips.
0: And you guys were doing sketch.
1: We are doing sketch and improv. Jim Belushi used to come see us. Before he was at Second City.
0: And then uh, you get hired at Second City. Well, it did not exactly go that fast, but because we were on
1: the scene for many years. Mm -hmm. We we evolved into the Comedy Rangers. Mm -hmm. I'd gone out to California and done the Groundlings. So I I was already doing improv here, and then I did the Groundlings and a bunch of gong shows. So I got in the union, and uh, I did the first VJ with uh, Michael Nesmith. And then uh, I missed being here. I missed playing with those guys, so I came back. And then you studied with Dell, right? So
0: I studied with Dell before then. And what was that like? What did you learn from Dell?
1: I learned, well, I always learned something. But uh, here's phrases that come to mind. Right? Impeccable lawyers. And what did he mean by that? He meant, it's part of that thing of following the fear of, of moving courageously into the thing that makes you uncomfortable, that a sense of vulnerability. The other thing he would say, he'd say, you guys are not actors, you're poets. You're poets.
0: And what did he mean
1: by that to you? He meant that you were generating your, your poetry through your understanding, that your, uh, your connection, the reason that you seemed legitimate is because it was you expressing through yourself. Like, I did a lot of characters. You saw yeah. It, right? and, um, but I started getting notoriety at Second City in the reviews when I stopped doing characters. It's when I, I became director, and so I, I would put my stuff up last. So I would go, well, what do we need in this show? So if I was a straight man, I was a straight man. If it was whatever was needed. That, and that helped me grow as an actor as well.
0: Which is interesting because most people at Second City, when they're, they're doing a review, they're like, oh my God, I'm short in the show, I need to be put in the show. But when you directed, you actually hung back and yeah. said, okay, where am I needed?
1: That's right, because it's the only way I could gain uh, a legitimacy with my cast. I had, to, I had to put them first. I couldn't compete with them. And then uh, I talked to Paul, uh, Paul Sills, and Dell. And so, well, what did you guys do when Paul walked out, for instance? And he would tell me little strategies they did to put up the shows. Because Dell would—I mean, uh, Paul would often quit a couple weeks before opening.
0: And Dell had that reputation too. At That's right. I said, yeah, right. They both did. Right. Panic. Right. right. They learned. Dell learned from Paul probably to do that. Right. right.
1: I don't know. I don't know. Well. Uh, I probably Dell probably I don't know what his relationship was with his cast but I know from being around him he could be devastating to an individual.
0: I saw that too in class. I yeah. mean he could be people would leave or in tears. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what,
1: uh, I don't know that that's always a good thing to be a director or if it is you need people that can come back at you like the 30 years war company. Those guys are all seasoned improvisers from outside Second City. Rob Riley, Danny Breen, Bruce Jarko, um, Belushi was in-house, uh, Megan Faye, Lance Kinsey came from Tennessee. But those guys are already kind of fuck you guys, you know.
0: So they, they would respond well to yeah, right. Dell being a little hard on Right, them. absolutely. And, um,
1: and fight back, too. That was a great show. I don't know if you ever saw 30 Years of War. No, but I didn't. they used that show for the Turing Company shows for the longest time. Prior to that, it had been a show that Joe Flaherty and Belushi did that they used all the Turing Company stuff from. They only used those two things for
0: the longest time. And also, you were not only a director, but you were also a teacher. Yeah. And uh, th- there's a great quote that I'm sure you're aware of uh, that Stephen Colbert uh, said that you taught him how to love bombing. Yeah, I taught him I to love the bomb. Do you remember that, what you said to him? Uh, Do you remember they that, were to, They were trying to... Were directing or teaching? I was teaching? directing
1: the turn Company okay. that he was in. And in their sets, they were being very kind of trying to kowtow to the audience. And they'd have some idea, and if it wasn't going well, you could see their panic. And I said, no, you, can, you have to learn to love that. That's where, that's what you need to do is to bomb. Because at that moment, you are, well, here's, it's about trajectory, right? You realize I lost the audience, right? The player. When you bomb. You're, bom- you're starting to bomb. They're, you're definitely, they're gone. And you realize that. If you suddenly back away and give up, they feel sorry for you. If you try to fix it, then they get annoyed. But if you keep going in the same trajectory, whatever you were bombing about, but with more awareness now, you keep going that way, harder and harder and harder. So
0: give me an example. Um, so people are listening to this podcast understand uh-huh. how they need to go harder and harder and harder for something. Uh, let's
1: say, you, well, I'm going to use a content thing. Okay. Right? So let's say you lost the audience because of contact. Mm-hmm. You, right? you said something that was offensive to the kids, right. right? And you lost them. Maybe it was a, a house of same-sex people and you, you did your
0: whatever thing that offended them. And as a player, you probably go into shame and you want to shut That's down. That's right. You shut down. Right. right?
1: Uh, or you try to fix it and go, I didn't mean that. or You try apologize. To, or you <laughs> lie to them. Or you apologize or lie or whatever. Right. But if you keep going in the same direction... Eventually, you'll hit that point where it levels off, where they truly understand and accept what it is that you're doing. And you have everyone in the house at that moment. Mm-hmm. And he said he used it when he did the bush roast mm-hmm. and went at the press thing, that they weren't laughing. And uh, Paul, Danilo, had written, and him had written another uh, alternative thing. And he said he remembered what I said. And he kept going that way. And he did get the, they eventually had to laugh.
0: So in probably Stephen Colbert's, because um, people probably know that, he probably went harder and harder on Bush, right? Yeah, he, just kept, he,
1: he, didn't run, he didn't go back away from what he was doing. And the press had to, and it got absurd because, I forget the woman he had on the end, she's a reporter, mm-hmm. uh, very famous for being a left-wing reporter. He invited, he, she was his guest on the Diaz. I wish I remembered her name, but uh, he—he's—he's he's got that. He's the impeccable lawyer mm-hmm. he, uh, in everything. You don't see him back away ever. And part of the genius of that character was that that character just kept going, didn't apologize. He read all the books that he was dealing with the person. He knew from Bernie's classes that Bernie two, solids, yeah, that satire was self-indicting. Right, that it's. What does that mean? That means that you, and we see a lot of propaganda. We watch SNL or whatever. When you're just making fun of a person, uh, that's not satire. It, celebrity or politician or even their policies, that's not satire. Satire is self-indictment. It's how does my behavior differ from my ideals? Right? So when you focus on that, you find the big picture. You actually really understand satire. It's Jonathan Swift, right? It's that idea of um, a theater without heroes. That's what Second City should be. That's what it was, a theater without heroes. What do
0: you think the state of... You've come back, you've seen shows. What do you think the state of Second City was back versus when you were there in the in the 80s? Well,
1: I'm, I'm, you know, a lot of people will go, oh, oh, my guys were the best, This, this and that. Well, that's not exactly true. There were ups and downs there before the Rob Riley cast where Bernie went out and got people from the outside You, it, it was a pretty homogenized cast I think they called them the country clubbers and they're uh, they're all from the North Shore and their stuff was kind of flat and Shields and Darnellish I don't know there was what year are we talking about
0: 90s here no 80s is, uh,
1: late uh, 70s late 70s yeah
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, um, Donnie DePaulo was a legitimate guy, and he was there all the entire time. Right. But he was in a very a series of casts, some better and mm-hmm. some not. Right. So, uh, so there's there's always that second city. There's been a disruptive thing that happens, and mm-hmm. that's when it gets revitalized. In the Belushi era, those guys are also outsiders. Mm-hmm. Right. So someone sees them. Joyce sees them performing at the University of Illinois, calling themselves. The second city or the comp- second city east or something
0: and they, they were doing their material,
1: yeah, they were doing their material, and so they hired them, and now they had a, went from a group of uh, burnt out uh, east coast drug addicted uh, comics because mm-hmm. that there was a crew there that uh, Sheldon directed that were basically comedians because Bernie started hiring through an agency mm-hmm. right? And uh, the big guy in that was uh, um, David. Uh, I can't think of name. Steinberg. Steinberg. And they, if you, in those shows, he was the star. I mean, he, they were treat treated like a star. Focus was put on him like a star because there was a bunch of comics competing against each other.
0: And when you mean comics, I mean just so the audience of actually stand-up comedians. Yes. That was like. Um, uh, Steinberg, mm-hmm. uh, Robert Klein Robert came Klein. through there. Yeah, yep. uh,
1: everybody in that group pretty much was a stand-up. Uh, can't think of the other guys' names because I'm getting old. But um, um, one guy had three names: something Harvey,
0: something, something Fireberg, or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that.
1: Yeah. And uh, so, so that so the Belushi th- thing comes in and disrupts that, Ramus, those guys, right? Ramus is a... Bill Murray's in there, too? Bill Murray's on the back end of that. Mm-hmm. Right? So Bill Murray takes Brian's place, mm-hmm. Brian Doyle Murray, mm-hmm. who's a great improviser. Uh, and it's really
0: not there that long.
1: I mean, Billy's not there that long, because he goes to join those guys in the Lampoon.
0: National Lampoon, he was uh, doing gr- um, Lemmings, I think, yeah. right? On yeah. the radio. Yeah,
1: and those were the first SNL guys, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. were uh, Lemmings guys.
0: Um, and then what about your year? You know, you had, you know, you, you and your, your wife, Jane Morris, Jane Morris, start the ETC uh, theater. Now, theater. at that time, there was only the main stage and the touring company. Right, we weren't supposed to start anything. Well, tell me how that came about. Then. They were going to put touring
1: companies back there uh, and do best stuff shows. And we were already, we had already played clubs for years and years. We had a sense of our own material. We started doing our own material on the road um, during the Second City Touring Companies. We didn't, you know, make a big deal of it, but we were doing it. And so when they put us back there, we said, well, we're going to do it. And they said, don't do that. And it was like, and for me, I didn't care if I got fired by that point because I needed to do stuff that was, and I had confidence in everybody I was with that they could do their own material. And that there was sort of an artificial divide between main stage and everybody else. You know, practical in the sense that you want a hierarchy, you want people to be shooting for something. But I just started consulting people like Dell and Paul and how how did you guys do it? How did you guys do it? And that's kind of what I took. And your first show, was that Mirrors on Ice? No, that was... uh, First show is cows on ice, and the second show is mirrors on, on the borders. Border.
0: Yeah. yeah, and immediately it becomes a hit. Back
1: That's there. right. That's why we weren't fired.
0: Right, and also in a lot of ways. Is because this is the this is a little after the time I'm starting to take mm-hmm. classes at Second City, and I remember a show. Uh, maybe it was your third or fourth review mm-hmm. where you do the sports writers. Yeah, do you remember was this? Fun,
1: and we got in the sports pages.
0: Right, and in for people that don't know, it was a, a radio show here mm-hmm. with with four. For people, it was it was kind of before it took time because they would just talk about sports, right. and you guys did this wonderful parody on it and, and garnered all this attention. And I remember yeah. going to the show. We were uh, writers from Psychology Today, National Enquirer. National Enquirer. Right. It was it was great, yeah. and in a lot of ways, what was going on at the ETC upstage what was going on at the main stage. That's
1: right. It did. We got better reviews,
0: probably for three of those five shows I was in. And your stuff was a little more edgy, and it was speaking more to right. the generation. I thought so. But I was still using a traditional Second City approach.
1: So I talked to how the ensembles, to Paul and Dell on how the ensembles worked. And how do the ensembles work? In the early Second City, they were... It was like uh, the SCTV show. The inmates were in charge of the asylum. Right? it wasn't a director-generated show. It's a player-generated show, with the director kind of maybe serving as a head writer, not as a, not some. I mean, there are you do staging and stuff, but not as a staging device or choreographer or whatever. You're part of the crew, the writing crew.
0: So people that listen to this who want to direct sketch, want to direct improv. What advice would you give them? If, if they've taken that responsibility? On Don't them. try to change
1: anybody. See what they bring. They may they grow. You're going to let them grow. But whatever it is that you see that's successful about them, pull that out, at least to, fo- to showcase them somewhere in the show being who they are, best at being who they are. Uh, develop the show that way. There's, you know People have different talents. Even in a Second City show... Bernie had sort of a comedia approach to casting. So he had—I'm going to get a bottle of water here. He had a um, ingenue, right?
0: The a big, heavy-set guy.
1: Yeah, big guy who would be the butcher in comedia. Right. right. Uh, he had an intellectual observer, the right. kind of a trickster, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a, just the regular guy. Right? right. Regular guy and a regular girl. Now, sometimes those things got—they uh, were opposite. Like for Barbara Harris, for instance, was the ingenue, but she didn't play ingenues; mm-hmm. she played characters. My Nicole was a character, but played uh, straight people, right? So uh, it's who you have. It's who you have. Howard Alk was in that first show, not mm-hmm. an actor. He's a guy ended up hanging out with Dylan and doing. Dylan's movie with them. Bob Dylan? Yeah. Okay. Howard Elk, the three original partners at Second City Mm -hmm. were Paul Sills, Howard Elk, and uh, Bernie. Howard Elk was in the show. Not doing great stuff, but basically serving as a curator, right? And so they didn't make him do anything he didn't do. And that whole thing about wearing your characters lightly as a hat starts coming off that. Now, yeah, of course, Alan Arkin did heavy characters.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, mine, uh, and uh, Barbara Harris did characters. Most of the other guys in that crew, except for maybe Paul Sand, who did um, his, you know, his... Persona? His persona. But he was a mime, too, mm-hmm. like an expert mime. Uh, been to uh, deep character work. They put a hat on.
0: And you now, you've been in LA, has it been 20 years now, 30 yeah, years? Yeah, I went in 89, so it's a long time. And you go out there um, to, to take a second city to Santa Monica. Yeah, I'm directing this. And show. you're directing it. Yeah. And how was that experience? It was, uh, it was a
1: really horrible experience. What was bad about it? They tried to put stars from different companies, people that had been the big shots in their
0: company, into the same company. So they would take someone from Toronto, someone from Maine. And State. from different companies in Toronto, but mm-hmm. they were the showcase people. They were putting
1: an all-star team together. That's right, uh, Bonnie Hunt and people, and that's not. It doesn't work that way.
0: Why doesn't it work that way?
1: Because they their experience is kind of being in that. And they're funny people, you know, they're obviously funny people. But um, if you get identified as somebody that is that, like by reviewers or whatever, and the second show you did, you're going to get more stage time, you know. And uh, so you develop a thing where you don't have to work with everybody. You can just claim.
0: You go, you do your bit, right? Yeah. And you don't worry about the rest of the show. That's right. You, you're, and in California, you're, you're,
1: going, you're worrying about management now, right? People are hiring managers. You're worried
0: about managers, agents. Is this going to get me That's an audition right. for a TV show?
1: That's right, right. And then they started, Second City had a deal with Imagine and CBS. So they started trying to do sitcoms in the improv sets, which was, I couldn't stand it. It was horrible. Not, it wasn't even entertaining, right? And, and I'm thinking, how do we get an, the next show up, right, if we're using the sets to try to sell sitcoms? And then there's other issues with it, too. If you're using somebody else's scene that's not there and turning it into a sitcom, how ethical is that?
0: Right, and you're talking about real money now. You're, not, yeah. you're talking about, could be hundreds of thousands that's of right.
1: dollars. And in this particular show, everybody wants to be showcased in that fashion, mm-hmm. right? Now, I was able to do that, but it was a struggle because they don't, you know, people don't necessarily want to share time. Right? They want to; they're really concerned with themselves mostly. But I had people, you know, to rely on. And Jane was there, and uh, Fred Kaz was there, and uh, mm-hmm. a couple of the Canadian guys that I directed. We were in the company that I directed when I
0: directed in Canada. So they knew how I worked, you know. But when that gets over, you guys, you and your wife, Jane Morris, set up the Upfront Theater. Well, we were both fired, right? Oh, you were fired? Yeah, I got my first pink slip. From second, well, second, really, I guess, right? No, no,
1: but I'm first real, someone walked up to me with a pink slip.
0: You're kidding me. Yeah. And what was the grounds of being fired? I wouldn't fire Fred, Kaz. Now, for people who don't know, Fred Kaz, Fred Kaz, uh, legendary piano player, Mm. uh, music director here at Chicago, was one of the original people at Second City. No, no, he was came in. uh, The first guy was
1: a guy. He's got a Sufi name now. um, Cat Stevens. No. Okay. (laughs) I'll I'll think of it in a little bit. But but firing. He was Fred's roommate.
0: But but firing Fred Kaz is like in Second City. I mean that that that's a big deal. It was a big deal. And why, why did you want to fire him? I didn't.
1: I did not want to fire him. Oh, they wanted... They, the producer wanted to fire him.
0: And what was their ground?
1: That he was old-fashioned or something. There are people in the company that wanted somebody that played rock and roll mm-hmm. and stuff. And there was a guy in, in uh, Canada, very good. I worked with him, uh, mm-hmm. Bob Durkash, great composer. Boom. Um, would be a good guy in that, but I didn't know they were thinking about Dierkes. I just know that they wanted Fred was outspoken if he didn't like what was happening, and uh, that's to, to the cast members, to the cast members, to the producers, to everybody. Right? But because it had sort of been a family thing before, if he if he had had a thing uh, argument with Bernie, it, you know, it was there, it was open, but it wasn't grounds for. Uh, Insurrection or insubordination, right? So uh, obviously, if you're going to keep hiring Dell when he keeps walking out, there's there's a uh, there's
0: some dysfunction in the family.
1: Yeah, and an acceptance of this is how we work. Yeah, yeah, or this is how this guy works. So
0: you 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 begin this after this, you begin these. They fired me from directing Mm -hmm. and replaced me with two guys who would
1: fire Fred, and they did. but but as a, a as a uh, carrot they let me start the workshop program so i started the in workshop in los angeles yeah i started the workshop program in los angeles and i did it though i go how would i do it and i called severn darden i called mina Kolb. i called avery shriver i called all these great guys and made them part of the program but you couldn't you couldn't pay those guys 100 bucks you had to pay them not great amounts of money, but enough to go, look, this is a partnership. Right. Right? And uh, so we did that for a while. And, and once you have a commodity, that's the only thing that was making money in California. That's because the shows were... Uh, probably we m- maybe did four shows a week out there instead of six, six days. So it'd run Thursday through Sunday and not full houses. And they they had a lot of leverage, a lot of money they owed for people that invested and had promised them a return within the first year, and that was not going to happen. So this earthquake thing came up where they wanted them to do earthquake compliance in the theater, and uh, they, uh, Andrew went to the landlord of the building. He wouldn't do it, and so he used that as uh, a way to get out. Was that a hard time for you? you it was had- very difficult for me because it was not the way I worked. We got a good show-up, but uh, I had to be adversarial to my cast for the first time. Not that I was mean to but I was demanding that everybody get their piece in the show.
0: And, uh, and really, at ETC, it was... People would say it's Jeff and Jane's theater. I mean, yeah, you had... You know, if you wanted to get hired back there, you had to get to know Jeff and Jane. No, that's not true. But, I mean, you, ha- you had your own thing back there, your own anonymity, yeah. and now you're going to L.A., yeah. and in a lot of ways, you have to answer to people. Yeah, that's true.
1: What happened was, and even in the ETC company, they would remove my guys and put them on the main stage or send them to New right. York, and they'd give me the people they fired from the main stage. So I wasn't choosing people. Okay. Right. Um, there would be individuals I could, uh, say, well, let's bring this guy in. Mm-hmm. They would consult me on it mm-hmm. sometimes. Right. But other times they just gave me, I had eight, nine person casts sometimes mm-hmm. back there. And I still put up a show that reviewed and people that they didn't want up there and still was able to do that. And because I just approached it differently, it's more, it's more of, of, uh, me trying my best to help everybody get their thing together. And I did fire people sometimes, but that's because they either weren't participating or were playing some other type of game of um, competing through the front office. You know.
0: So they, uh, you would fire them if they were? If they were people that were just basically
1: there to report that everybody's mad or terrible or whatever.
0: And then, when you're in LA, you get you get fired. You actually get a pink slip. I'm learning so much about you. And then you guys start doing the Second City um, Herald alumni, Second City alumni. That's later.
1: So what happens is um, this kid who was a student. I went to Atlantic City. That uh, well, they worked for Second City for that summer because Joyce was always very good to me. And uh, when we came back, Second City was closing, and we got the, we got the word about it from someone else. And so I won't tell you the terrible story about that, but uh, basically it's a surprise to the cast that they, they were closing. It's basically, you're closing Monday, right? Um, and there was a kid that was in the classes. He had some money from Malibu. His dad was a motivational speaker, and he approached my brother who had taken over my classes while I was in Atlantic City, to open a theater after Second City closed. And he wanted to open it in Malibu. And so my brother asked me about it, and I said, I don't know, and I started walking down the promenade. And I said, let's do it here. Let's do it where Second City said it can't be done. And we found a Mexican restaurant. I mean, it wasn't the promenade the way it was, is now. It's still kind of sketchy. Okay. Right? And we found a Mexican restaurant that we could lease month to month for you know, something we could afford. And uh, we started cleaning it out and ripping out tiles and pulling old food out of the ovens. And we opened up a place called Upfront Comedy. When we did, we suddenly had a bunch of the old Second City students coming in to play with us. And then Second City, who was also trying to do a workshop still there, called me in for a meeting. And they asked, the woman that gave me the pink slip. And she said, uh, we'd like to uh, take over your thing. You guys would still get paid. You'd be teachers, uh, you know, it'd be a Second City thing. And, and I, said, I said, look, the reason we have people is because they don't want <laughs> that. <laughs> so you guys, they felt betrayed by that. And, you know, so this is upfront. We're doing this up front, and that's what we called it, up front comedy.
0: And this is before I.O. goes out there? This is before UCB yeah. goes out there? We had
1: the original Second City cast on stage our opening night, most of them. From the Santa Monica from show? 19, no, from 1960 in Chicago.
0: You're kidding
1: me. No, they oh, were called who? the postmodern the, the first person I called when this club thing came up it was Severin. Severin Darden? Yeah, I said, Severin, if I open a club, will you play there? And he said, yes, of course. And so it was Minot Kolb, Severin Darden, Roger Bowen. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a couple guys that weren't from the original company. Uh, Peter Bonners, who was with the uh, committee. committee, and uh, Garrett Graham. Uh, I don't know who he was with, but he was in the movie called Phantom of Paradise. He played Beef, the big rock star in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe Tino, Tino insano so, but, and, but Paul Sand walked by the club on opening night, not going, knowing what's going on. And I, I made it a point to have our windows clear because I wanted people to see what was happening on stage. I don't care if they stood out there and didn't pay and watch. And Paul saw his cast on stage, and Fred Woodcourse was playing piano. So that was our opening night. So we had them and we had uh, my group, which is called Bucket of Snakes. I had growling groups there because, you know, I said, I was in the growlings. I know those guys. You know, we should make this open to everybody. This is not some comedy dojo thing where, you know, we're doing the second city style and our master does it this way. Right. so we opened classes, and we did, uh, we did shows.
0: And what I find fascinating is you were then putting people together from different generations of Second City yeah. and Groundlings and yeah. students and whatever. What do you learn from that? Well, I did it because
1: I always felt they were all my tribe. Right? When Fred Katz, God bless him, said to Severin, he's one of us, meaning me. I'm one of them. You know, it's like the freaks. You know, the, right. One of us, one of us. And he, in fact, he called improvisers decent freaks. That's what Fred called uh, us. And I, you know, And Paul's thing was, who's your cast? Whoever walks in the door. And both of those things are things I actually kept in the ETC thing, too. I didn't reject anybody that walked in, even if they were, even, cause they were fired.
0: Even if they had a bad reputation, even if they were fired, even if yeah. you told them, these, this person sucks, yeah. you would work with them. That's right.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely,
0: Which is really the spirit of improv, isn't right. it? Yep. I mean, going back to Spolin? Yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, it was important to me to approach things that way. Um, so, and it, uh, it was good for everybody. I mean, and then there's all kinds of historical things that happened. Tina Fey thinks that the first equal cast was three men and three women, and the cashiers, isn't. We had a cast that was four women and three men, Directed by Jane, that's our last show, the channel this great show. So th- there are things we did that we actors of color and things that weren't being done that much there. And not because we're trying to make a point, but just from that thing. And also the idea of why why does it have to be this and this? These are the people that are here. This is how we're gonna do it. So um, there, you know, but we weren't getting Official, um, we weren't promoted by Second City. In the You're first talking first
0: about shows. the ETC shows. Yes. Yeah.
1: We had to go out, sneak out, and have, and then and do our own press release like, to get a reviewer to come in.
0: But I think in a lot of ways, this, you starting that theater back there, mm-hmm. helps you start the upfront because it's no yeah. big deal for you and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing I find interesting is because I went, And the alumni
1: shows that you mentioned, which you brought up, those were the greatest thing, period.
0: Would you say that's the high point of your career in improv?
1: I don't know. ETC is a big deal. Is there a
0: memory of ETC, uh, of a scene, or, or, or just something that happened that you're like, oh, my God, you know, this is such a fond memory?
1: There were the way scenes developed there that were truly organic, some of them. Uh, not my scenes, even, but there, There's a thing called sensitive men. I don't know if you remember that scene. It's from Mears, and the device we used was something Dell told me about moving in triangles. So we had this scene where these three guys are at a party. They're incredibly sensitive men, and they're they're talking. They're smoking and talking about what was happening down in the party, and kind of a talky scene. And I just remembered that thing that Dell did and said, anytime somebody moves, we're going to be in a triangle. And any time somebody moves, everybody moves. And then sometimes randomly and sometimes uh, start to move and then shift back. And it became kind of the poetry of that scene, that movement.
0: Which, if you think about it, was a very, very simple game. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And now, you know, you... you the t-
1: the only thing I learned at ETC, now that you mention it, was there are two, you're doing two things in this, this, the show. You're, you're making your point on the the uh, what the scene is about, but you're not expecting everybody to get it. You're doing this, but you're constructing the scene in a way that everybody likes the scene. Everybody gets the scene on some level. So it's broad enough for everybody, for the groundlings, right? Right. And deep enough for the interior. We did a scene, and we were doing this, this scene where we were doing... Uh, making fun of Spanish um, soap operas, and I didn't care for it. But I'm, you know, I'm, again, I'm not going to intervene with the cast and go, you can't do that, right? Because it's all uh, uh, jokes about uh, fixing cars in the street and all that
0: stuff. Pretty stereotypical yeah. stuff and for I, the time. And
1: I went, yeah, got to do something else. So I grabbed the guy that cleans the theater. He's Spanish, Puerto Rican. I forget his name, unfortunately. A nice. And I, we wrote a scene together in Spanish. And so we treated it as a dub scene. Uh, so I, I forget if we were doing English on stage or Spanish on stage, but there are two different scenes. The scene in Spanish was a scene about the turmoil of being an immigrant and, and how much has been taken away from them and the fun that's made out of them. And the other, the English scene, was the stereotypes thing. So I think, we had, I think we had people on stage speaking the Spanish part and people on the mics doing the English part, like a translation. But if you were Spanish, you saw a different scene than everybody else.
0: And the thing that I have a lot of respect for you is I think you're a teacher, it's almost it's very important to you about being an improv teacher. and. You've evolved since we worked together, you know, and um, you talk about it's really important when two people are on stage. You teach engagement. Absolutely. Can you explain that?
1: Uh, It it, it means that if you're in your head writing, you're not engaged with the other player. You have to be there right from the beginning. So you have to be connected with them in, in some fashion, even before you start talking. So I did a play in with Actors Gang people in Los Angeles, and uh, they called us me and Hamilton Camp in at the last minute because they'd lost their cast. We had a split up, and uh, we came in, and there were these people running around this big warehouse, and seemingly connected, but you know everything looking random. And um, Hamilton said, "I'm not doing that shit." And I was watching them do it and they seem to be connecting. I said I think they're doing what we do except all with movement. And sure enough that's exactly what it was they were doing viewpoint stuff where they're moving kinesthetically in a space they could be it didn't matter how you reference each other. You don't have to be doing the same thing, but you're 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 um, using the movement as stimulus for your movement.
0: Uh, viewpoints is almost the, the time I've done it. it's almost like movement improvisationally move me. Right. Now you know where it comes from. Where? Anne Bogart went and saw a
1: dance company where they had broken down the viewpoints of different stage practices and named them, and architecture, um, gesture, so forth and so on. That company was founded by Viola's sisters, Viola's sister, Beatrice.
0: So it was the same thing. Right, but they, in, in a lot of ways, movement, and I think we'll probably, you mm elaborate on this movement is like the simplest and basic improv it is like the it's the it's the
1: it's the most absolute yes and you can do Mm -hmm.
0: right right acknowledging right if you come out and Spolin's mirror exercise Mm -hmm. is, is is you can't get more primal than that right two people mirroring exactly what they're doing yeah
1: but we're doing kinesthetic stuff right now. It's mm-hmm. just part of communication. Right. You're nodding your head and, and to stimulus. I'm doing my hands. You're doing your hands. Right. And that's kinesthetic movement that we do all the time, but we don't acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. So when you see two people just kind of standing on stage, or one of them even disembarks to go start creating aware, they're disengaging from the other player for a moment. Now, yeah, of course, the other player has the... Uh, uh, option of moving with that person. But if you're going out to create something that's in your head, you're disengaging.
0: So um, how do, would you like to see two players start f- to, to get that pure engagement? The moment they walk on stage. Well, the first thing is
1: if you walk on stage by yourself, then you do use the architecture or the audience, right? If there's somebody coughing in the audience, I'm like, <coughs> you know.
0: So you would cough too? Is that what you cough, or just do the gesture? Okay.
1: Or even just this, you know, like a clown does, you know? Right.
0: You would recognize them coughing. Right.
1: i would recognize there's a sound, a stimulus.
0: Right. So you're reacting to something in the audience, which is interesting. Or the architecture. Okay, give me an example. We're in a
1: well, like let's. um, We're in a room. There's some lights overhead, right? So I can play with the shapes of the. I can move. then I can also use them for, in the abstract thing for what they intended for. So I can play with it like this, right? Or if, if it's a speaker, I can do that even if nothing's coming out.
0: So what you're doing is saying, react to something. Yes. Sir. The first thing to do is to react to, to it. Give to give the stimulus. What mm-hmm. is the
1: stimulus in the room? You, um, in comedy clubs, you'll, sometime, they used to have the big coolers In the bar, right? And the ice would...
0: Make that clanking, clanking, clanking sound.
1: If you don't acknowledge it, it's horrible. Nobody can pay attention to the show, right? But if whoever it is on stage or something goes, listen to that shit, and they put attention on it, then it's fine. You can do the rest of the show now. Because you acknowledge that thing that's obvious to everybody. Same thing when you're playing with an actor. That actor might have a story, but if I can see on his face he looks sad, that's what the audience can see.
0: So this is another concept that you talk about. Reading and, the other players. Yeah, and you said there's a story there. Yeah. So if I'm looking, let's say you come into a scene and mm-hmm. I'm looking, um, I'm just, I'm, I look frustrated. And I might say, you, you're frustrated. Yeah, I just I just got fired.
1: And then, so now I would use the word fired. I'd break that up, and that's the that's the focal point that Dell would bring up. Mm-hmm. Okay, got, you got let go unjustly. You got you got, you got disbarred. Right? That's what I'm saying, right? So those two words, they're uh, either the unjust one or disbarred, is defines the place. Okay, so this you're, place is a place where people get dismissed.
0: All right, so you took fired, and you got a relationship out of that, yeah. and you got a location out of that.
1: Yeah, the, I would do the, the location would be uh, maybe a, when I say disbarred, maybe it's a uh, legal clinic. Right? And our relationship is uh, we two people that have been cut off from each other.
0: And so Dell's theory was that to to take that first to take that word or that line and, and, and deconstruct he it? He whatever
1: the, yeah, deconstruct it. That's what the scene's about, that, that whatever that person said means way more than what it means on the surface. In order to find out that meaning, you have to deconstruct it in either in your head or, or, or even verbally, right? So I'll give you an example. Let's say that you use the word chair, right? Right. So what is a chair, Right. So everything you break open is an abstract. It's poetry. You can't define a chair. You, I mean, you can sit there all day long, and you cannot define what a chair is, right? So as an abstract, it's a place to rest. It's a head of a department in a colloquial term. It's a place of execution. So now I can do a scene that takes place at an execution place. I'm executing my teacher. And he's been someone that I've always relied on for comfort.
0: So let's go back for a second to mm-hmm. this, this first line mm-hmm. thing. And if you come out and I'm calling somebody's behavior, and I'm, let's say I'm looking at you and you look very sincere, mm-hmm. and I said, uh, uh, well, Bill, I've got some good news. You got an A- minus on today's test. You can do that, and that's fine. I play that way all the time, too. But
1: there's a deep, there's a deeper thing there. So if you say uh, I got, so you say, I look. Well, I. So my response would be because I'm trying to justify the gen- sensitive thing was, uh, I didn't think I had it in me. I didn't. I didn't think I'd make it through this. I'm shocked, right? So I'm acknowledging your read of me. I'm putting it in context of, uh, the A. I don't feel like I deserved it. I mean, there's...
0: So to a lot me, you're, you're, me, you're taking that line mm-hmm. to simplify it for people that are listening, to understand it, for me to understand it, and them too, is like, you're emotionalizing whatever that is. Is it that simple? In the con-
1: it, it's in the context of your read. Your read could be anything, right? Right. So it doesn't have to be necessarily, it's a demeanor read. Mm-hmm. Uh, emotion might be connected to it. Um, I don't like projected emotion, right? If it's there, it's fine. Right. But if you project, if you walk on stage angry, just as an artificial thing, you can't sustain that. And in order to sustain that, sustain that, you have to have the other player uh, um, do a conspiracy of mediocrity. Mm-hmm. They have to pretend, which uh, Bernie would say was awful fiction.
0: So this isn't. Your approach isn't—we're making any of this up. We're taking it off the part. We're discovering.
1: So, and the extension of that is pattern recognition. You you're familiar with William Gibson? The no. Okay. So his whole thing is about—he's a science fiction writer, but this stuff is about branding. And Dell also loves—he
0: loves Ryan
1: Harber. Yeah. Um, so, pattern recognition is how the brain works. So you are you we are here. This morning, and we can't get in the door. Right. Right? So, that might cause a bit of frustration. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you went and solved the problem right now, but it might cause frustration. Your brain will start telling you why there's other things to be frustrated about. Right? It'll recognize that pattern and go, Yeah, maybe I'm not going to get to the acupuncturist in time, and you know, so forth and so on. So, the frustration starts building. Mm-hmm. But that's just how the brain works. And once you can recognize that, you can use that in your thing because that's the way the audience consciousness works too they recognize the patterns what do we identify in each other's behavior the patterns that's what the scene is about not about anything I invent the context is there might be two soldiers or uh, you know a a midwife and another person The the context changes
0: the play remains the same so when you improvise how do you like to improvise
1: I start off trying to know nothing about anything.
0: Even if you've given a, been given a theme.
1: Yeah, because even Nandel would say this too. You're not given the theme, the suggestion, to do the suggestion.
0: Suggestion is cheese.
1: That's right. It's the thing that triggers something in you, something personal, right? Or editorial. And it's that, that's what emerges.
0: So you hear cheese as a theme? Yes. And
1: uh, for, me, for me, maybe fermentation becomes part of that. That's, for me, as a Second City guy who's trying to look at what is the scene about, maybe I've broken it open now, I've deconstructed it to fermentation. Right?
0: And you're also going to come into that scene blank. Yeah,
1: even that scene. I've already been informed by whatever we did at the beginning. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally blank. But, I'm, but something in me has uh, given me fermentation or smell or something. So uh, it's there.
0: So will you come out smelling, or will you just go, you know what? I deconstructed it. I'm still going to come out blank and hope that somewhere in the subconscious, it's there.
1: I, I know it's there. I know it's in the sub- subconscious. So you it's really closer to my consciousness now, because it's right, how right, I play, right? Right. So, I, might, I mean, if, it's, if I made a face when I heard cheese, that's, I'm going to use that Okay. I'm not going to connect it to anything. I'm not going to tell a story off of it. It's just the way my face looks. Right? Okay, so
0: you come in, you've got your cheese face, which mm-hmm. looks kind of squinty, right. eyes. And, and then
1: somebody will say, read that, whatever that guy. You look disgusted, maybe they'll mm-hmm. say, right? And then I'll just give an honest answer. It's you like, look disgusted. Yeah, and I said, I might, uh, I might say, I just uh, I can't stand the atmosphere. And they might they break open can't stand or atmosphere whatever it is they break that open.
0: So I'm get you give me can't can't stand the atmosphere. Yeah. How do I did, break that open? You,
1: well, what is atmosphere?
0: Atmosphere could be where we are.
1: We could be at a party. Okay. Where else?
0: Uh, atmosphere could be we're on a plane. Atmosphere could be.
1: What about as uh, as far as tone? It can be a tone in a room, right?
0: Yeah. Right? It uh, could be too loud. Yeah. It could be you don't like the people.
1: Right. That's right. You
0: know? So let's say
1: you said you don't like the people. mm mm-hmm. You now, don't like the people. And now this is a place where, if I got a postcard, this is a place where you do not like the people. And it's personal but also broad. hmm So a place where I do not like the people might be a church.
0: hmm so, I could say something like, you know. So, so, so I go. Uh,
1: I, I, so I would do the where at that point. So, if once you broke that open, mm-hmm. I would make it a, a church. I don't believe in what these people believe in. And you would manifest the church, right? Yeah. So, you would manifest okay. the church. So, anything I create, you manifest. Anything you say, I, man- I put it in the space. Mm-hmm. So, you'd show us a, a church where people don't like each other
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? and that's our beginning and then we have, then that's our thing too we don't we the atmosphere, there's an atmosphere between us
0: and my next thought would be like oh come on, get over it, it's your sister's wedding
1: and uh, you, that becomes a problem but mm-hmm. the, I have to acknowledge that, well that's the kind of this is the kind of people she likes, these are the people she invited These are not people that are here for her well-being or
0: yours. I think you're just intimidated because they make more money than you. Yeah, and they flaunt it. Look at it.
1: They're burning cash. They got champagne all over the place. Well,
0: can't you, one day out of the year, can't you just not make it about yourself?
1: So you're saying that... This wedding, I'm making this moment about me.
0: Yeah, you're in...
1: I'm contaminating this atmosphere.
0: Yes, you are. Look, everyone's wearing a tuxedo. You're in the, the wedding party, and you're wearing a frickin' T-shirt. Well, maybe I don't belong here.
1: Maybe I don't belong here.
0: Well, the way you're dressed, you don't belong here. What about you? You don't belong with these people.
1: You're kind of cow-towing towing to their atmosphere.
0: Look, I could get a job out of this. I'm networking. Okay, I understand. I understand. Well, good luck. So, is that? Are we making discoveries there? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, my discovery. I'm still relating it to atmosphere, no matter what you say. So you say to
0: how are you relating it to atmosphere?
1: Well, when I say that people are flaunting, right, are creating an atmosphere, right.
0: Why do we forget that? Why do we forget the environment? Why do we forget the atmosphere? Why do we forget it?
1: Uh, Because we're trying to survive on stage. People are, they're struggling to survive. They, they, uh, they don't want to be wrong, and that's the problem with rules improv, rules based improv.
0: You don't believe in the rules of improv.
1: I do, but they're not rule. They're not that way, right? For instance. You know that thing about giving focus to the entrance and exit? Yeah. If you're With playing kinesthetically, you're going to do that naturally. Okay. Because you're responding to movement.
0: What about uh, yes and? That's a rule, isn't it? it, it yeah, but uh, not really. Yes and comes
1: out of a simplification to explain to somebody that hasn't done viola and stuff what's what, the fast way. The, this is a, it's, not, it's not the full thing there. Because on um, a Yes Anne, you're agreeing to the assertion of where we're at and who we are to each other, not about anything else. You can say something nonsensical, and I can go, that makes no sense. Right? I can deny that
0: thing. Well, in our scene, we want to agree to the reality of we're at a church. We're that's at a, a wedding, wedding. But we can have inside that, we can have we disagreement. We have our own. As-
1: right. As- right. Right. That's right. We can have disagreement.
0: Right. right.
1: And uh, and that's, but not conflict necessarily.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Conflict is straight on. Okay. Conflict is yes, no, right? Right. So we have something in there. There's a little tension in our thing. Mm-hmm. But it's not straight out conflict because I'm able to walk away and say good luck.
0: Right. Right.
1: So uh, it's not just a fight about... Uh, I'm being bad, you're being
0: good. Okay, what about in our improv there? I introduce a problem. Right. Is that, is that the strongest choice I could have not don't,
1: I don't know. I, for me, no. Introducing a problem is the thing that starts making... You can play through it, but then, then that becomes part of a relationship. You, for me, you create problems. Right? So it becomes a character thing now at this point. So mostly... Real, it's what you've already shown the audience. If you're, if you've shown the audience you're a disagreeable person, then you're
0: going to play a disagreeable that's person. It,
1: that's right. Uh, so th- it's the discovery. How is our behavior to each other? What's the pattern
0: here? So, what's a different choice to make? Because it seems like one of mine is like. Oh, I, I'm going to create a problem, which is probably panic and fear on it my It is. Part.
1: I think it, I think it is because you want you want to understand the other player, so and you still can find problems in that, obviously. So the response to most dialogue is, "So what you're telling me is, right? It's reframing what the person not reframing it, but just." repeating what you understood that person to say.
0: So give me a line and see if I can do it.
1: Okay. um, Okay. um, I'll just tell you. Uh, I almost didn't make it here because I I was depending on public transportation.
0: You... Came a couple minutes late because the 147 w- was late.
1: Yeah, I, I just abandoned it. Really. I oh, and you
0: walked me. here, huh? Well,
1: I got an Uber, which oh. I'm ashamed to admit that I spent money on an Uber. But, but so, but it's more like what you're telling me is the breaking down of public transportation. What you're telling me is you, I could be telling you a lot of different things there that I don't have patience. Mm-hmm. I could be telling you uh, that I didn't plan ahead. I could be telling you...
0: You didn't call me for a ride? That's right, all those things. Okay.
1: So then you get the, f- the full meaning, and that's already expanded the world.
0: Okay. Right? And, that, and so you...
1: And, you, and you, you see Pasquese and TJ, that's, that's their thing.
0: So that first line, people want to just zoom through it. They but want you, to just get it over with, but you're saying take a little that time, absorb line. That that's is the line. That's, that's the line. most important line. Yeah. I've see. That's right.
1: That one and whatever you close out on. When you create problems for me, when, uh, problems on stage, I always solve them. Not, not, uh, not, uh, not. To, but because there's no reason for us to watch a bad transaction, mm-hmm. right? How much is that? Uh, Four dollars. Four dollars. And then I go, well, I'm not paying $4. Well, we, it says
0: $4. I'm not
1: paying $4. Right? So now we have this transaction. Right, that's going nowhere. That goes nowhere. So in that case, I just, okay, here's the $4. I'm not happy, but there's the 4 And that, that beats over. Mm-hmm. And then we can find out what the scene is. Now, for me, on the read, I like that. I might go, you're, you're a guy that sticks to the rules, probably to the de- detriment of your business. You could haggle with me. You could have.
0: Well, there... Um, yeah, see, now you, you're looking concerned. You, well, you, th- I, th- I. the thing is, I have to pay taxes on that money. Okay. And I could get audited.
1: All right, I understand. I understand. Case closed. I'm, are you, you going
0: to eat that here?
1: Um, do you want me to?
0: Uh, yeah. Because if you take it outside, then I'm going to have to give you a bag.
1: Wow! Yeah. I understand. You just to every little detail.
0: How many napkins would you like? You didn't say when you bought. What put
1: you is with... the what's the what's the, what's the limit? I know one. Give me the my one napkin. Okay.
0: Thank there you, you go. Um, the recycling's over there when you're done. Any rules you want me to know on that? Yeah. So one is for cans, one is for paper, and then the other is for just trash. So
1: So you're telling me that you are hyper-organized, this store. Any disruption can just destroy the whole thing.
0: That's why I only have one customer at a time.
1: Yeah, I see the line so yeah, we'll playing tonight. so' it's, it's about the reads and what's it more about in fact I probably could have gone what you're telling me I waited I Went over here and said, "Oh, I didn't do that." Right. right. And so, so I came back. But
0: I was just once you said you're a guy who plays by the right, rules, right. then I just create. I, I right. just played the game of the rules. Right. So, that's right. Now that might not have been my first choice. No.
1: You know. But that was my read, and so you honor my read. I, you, yeah. You, you which manage. is agreement. That's right.
0: And it does, and it makes improv better. Yes right. And easier that's for me. Right.
1: It makes it a lot easier when someone tells you who they who they think you are, as opposed to me trying to tell you who I am. Right. Right. That's the storytelling part is when somebody goes, well, I'm not like that. And, you know, all that stuff. They start rejecting everything right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Then they're telling story. Now we're waiting to see that point where we could actually engage.
0: There was something that you said um, about Dell and Dell said, you know, we need to react like paranoid. Paranoid or something like that. What did he mean by that? He
1: meant that whatever the other person's saying is way deeper than what. Uh, you you th- might think they intended. They mean more.
0: And I think we, sh- th- we just sh- right. showed a great example right. of, of that. Right, um, if you watch the 19, did you ever see that 1960
1: tape of Second City? They've got one with, uh, it's got Severin and, and, and Barbara in it and everybody. They're doing that. Severin will go. So what you're telling me, so what you mean by that, he's doing, they're doing a scene, First Affair, where the daughter, uh, uh, he comes in to see his daughter, and uh, he's, they have small talk at the beginning, and it, it really it's about her having sex as a teenager. But all through it, it's both, So and she'll say, so you're trying to tell me this, Dad, right? So they're reading into... The meaning of each and it deepens the scene
0: and is it just simply okay I'm going to take some time I don't have to throw my next line out no right, okay. just, just take, take that. it doesn't take that much time
1: really but it takes presence you have to hear what that other person says so sometimes you'll see people playing you know they're uh, new people in your class and you go wait a minute what did she say They're running off to the argument or the next line or whatever, new invention. And it's like, what did she say? What is she telling you? What did she just tell you? And you go back, listen to that, understand it, close it, move on.
0: And do you do that as an exercise in class? Like, oh, there's the first line. Okay, freeze. What did they say? I do.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I do that, yeah. So, uh, the beginnings of my class, it's all fundamental stuff, except a little bit more. So I do some Meisner stuff and...
0: How do you use Meisner?
1: Uh, oh, this is a great one. So, um, on Meisner, I'll have two people just sit across from each other and I'll create a scenario. So um, the scenario might be that we're two guys and this one I'll use a lot. So we're two assassins and, uh... We we've been hired for a thing, but it's taken place before we've done anything. We're on a balcony, across from it's taken place. So and someone
0: hired us to like knock someone off. Yeah, but and it's already happened.
1: It's already happened. So uh, and then I'll say to uh, these two players, forget I said that. Okay. Forget I said that, and I'll say to the audience, you remember, and then we'll just read each other's demeanor back and forth. And that's what the and the, you see a scene emerge from it, a really sophisticated scene.
0: And will you let them talk?
1: Yeah, they'll say, "I perceive you're, uh, I perceive you're bored.
0: I perceived you're uh, interested.
1: I perceive you're surprised.
0: I perceive you're trying to figure something out. I perceive you're trying to figure something out. I perceive you're scared." I perceive you,
1: you're, um, you're, you surprised that I'm scared.
0: I perceived you a little disappointed. I perceive uh, you not knowing. I perceive you a little more confident.
1: I perceive you unsure.
0: I perceive you sure, sure, sure of yourself.
1: I perceive you as still unsure. I perceive
0: you as relieved.
1: And then just end there. So we would go; the audience would go off those beats and say, "What happened between these two hitmen?" Right. Right. So they might identify you as the newer guy. Right? and me that sees us as a, a foreboding right maybe because I, I, I don't know right? right and uh that uh and I was relieved to know that you didn't know what was going on
0: well there was definitely a status thing right. you had the higher status right. than I did right and I in my mind I'm thinking all right uh, and it may go back all the way to our relationship mm-hmm. as you being one of my first teachers, right, right. but you were in charge, right. and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you were high status.
1: Right, and then the audience would... But I, I, would, I wouldn't be trying to project high no, status, No, right? no. It's just what was there, and they, they, people come up with incredible details about what happened between these two people.
0: Why is it important to have that um, thing at the beginning that didn't go right? How does that affect?
1: Well, I I always put something that has some charge in it. Okay. Another one I do is that there's two people that are invited to a wedding, and they're set at the same table, and they both had a relationship with somebody that's getting married. Okay. And they're, like, in the corner. and then So there's some sort of...
0: You're introducing stakes or or a little tension to the scene. A little
1: bit of tension. Not necessarily a competition, but whatever.
0: And then the audience, then, you open it up to the rest I, of the audience. I clip.
1: say to the audience, I say, okay, you, these are the beats, you wrote the scene, what happened.
0: And everyone's probably going to have a different take on it. Yeah,
1: or so, similar, but different, yes, absolutely. And then you get great details that are, that we didn't have, right? And the point is two things. The audience is your co-creator. They see, they'll tell us what room we we're in, right, even though we weren't doing anything. And... What we're doing is what the improviser does. He plays with the other player. He engages with the other player. He's not there concerned about content. He's there, he'll find content because it will emerge, right, as information comes out, pattern recognition. If, you, if I read you as unsure three times, well, there's a pattern there, right? And that pattern is that, you, that you're not in on this, right? That's how I read it, that you're not in on whatever happened here. And it's a relief to me. Right,
0: or I could have screwed something up and and be responsible for it. Right,
1: right, right.
0: What happens when people say, well, Jeff, that was a good scene, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't funny, you're not getting us to be funny. Uh, It is. I mean,
1: it it will be read as funny, not because we're saying funny things, but because we're behaving in ways that people behave.
0: You've been around for a long time. Uh, I mean,
1: I can do that. I can play the nightclub thing, mm-hmm. and when I need it, I'll, I, I can th- do the joke. But if I vary off of the scene, if I don't go right back to the scene, then I've got to come up with another joke, another joke, another joke, another joke, another joke,
0: another joke. Um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you see the biggest change in improv since you started back in the 80s or 70s? Uh, the,
1: the codifying of it, the branding of it Um, the things that happen with uh, products and capital is that you have to have something to sell right? and so that means that you commodify and reduce the nature of what you're selling so that you can have someone perform in four weeks you give them the simplest version the least expansive version, the more understandable version. And that's why you get this and, you know, the quick changes and the people not really engaging in the practice of improvising. They're, uh, they're doing something like it, but something, something else. I mean, there's a group that kind of is UCB guys, and they're great. They're called Mr. Johnson. Second City and UCB. That, and that's always kind of a plus, because then you get kind of both worlds. You're talking
0: about, like, Bob Callhan is in that group? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think there are... Uh, some maybe UCB, uh, Kevin Fleming's in that group? Yes,
1: that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tremendous group. They're doing that style, but they actually do do scenes in it. They actually do do the things like What You're Telling Me. They do it, you know? So they got something there somewhere, So context does happen, and it's discovered context. It's not just someone coming and throwing in a a crazy premise. A crazy premise emerges (laughs) with those guys. They make a
0: discovery versus an invention.
1: That's right, and it's all discovery. If you you can start training yourself and playing in a thing where it's all discovery, like this is moment-to-moment discovery, right? Now, in a regular scene, I might only read you twice. You know, we'll get to that point in the scene where we don't know what's happening anymore. And then I'll, I'll go, well, you look calm, and that becomes the beat change in the, the next, uh, the transition.
0: To me, uh, you've, you've gotten a lot of film and TV credits. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the thing that gets you most excited is improv- improvising and teaching improv. That's right. What gets well, you, I like performing it, too. But don't get me wrong. What gets you excited about performing it and teaching it still for somebody who's been doing it for so long?
1: Because I see it as a liberating thing. I, I kind of see it in, the, in, in much the same way that Paul and Viola saw it is, and you know, I think to a certain extent Dell too. He wasn't looking for a product either. I mean, the things become product, but that's not what he was doing, right? So, um, there, so for me, it's a way to tell, to show people that they're good enough to do anything. That the same, the same processes that you use to improvise are the same things you use to communicate with other people in life. The same things that you do with pattern recognition are the same tools you need to not uh, get caught up in a meme. Like So people send up memes on Facebook, this is this, and then people start re- reposting that this is this, that this is this, that this. Well, it's, it's, they're not looking at the pattern or the patterns that are emerging. And once you see the patterns, you're freer. You can make decisions because you're recognizing the patterns. You're understanding that my, I, the way you can influence me is by repeating lies to me, really. Right? If uh, like if you take a, a Trumpian thing, it just repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Well, that's the pattern. And if I don't start looking at the pattern, if I just accept that, I will. my brain will start accepting the lies you know and we have them all over, we have cultural lies about race we have uh, um, things that people use as memes, they create a word, they take the word liberal and make it tax and spend as as opposed to if we break it open it's about being tolerant that's what the word means, right to be tolerant doesn't mean tax and spend
0: So we've got to wrap this up, right. and we always ask the same question at the end of the podcast: What is one piece of advice you'd give to somebody starting out in improv today?
1: It's uh, I don't know I, to to oh to perform to perform as soon as you can because your best teacher is that it's not it's not a uh, What's the word? It's not, it's not where you, by time spent in school, in study, you learn anything more. Everything's already there right from the beginning. The practice is there. It gets more sophisticated. It's more like a martial art. It just gets, you just get more sophisticated. But The practice is simple.
0: So if you're in class and you say, I'm only being in class for two weeks, you're like, I don't care. Go no, to no, the perform. back of a bar and That's put right. a group together That's and right. perform.
1: That's right, yep.
0: What if they tell you, well, I'm not ready?
1: Well, then you tell me you're not ready. That's all.
0: Well, Jeff Michelski, thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. I'm so glad that this worked out. All right. Yeah, me too. And there you have it. Another great episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. I want to thank our guest all the way from Los Angeles, California, Jeff Michelski. I also would like to thank the good people, Andrew Gallant at Greenshirt Studio, for providing a space for us to record it in Chicago. Also, I'd like to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. Also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning classes, workshops, and intensives called The Art of Slow Comedy, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. Also, sign up for our Improv Nerd blog, and newsletter that will help you become a better improviser and a better person. The better person is up to you, but it will help you become a better improviser, we're hoping. Uh, Also, follow us on Twitter. We're improv underscore nerd. Go to Facebook and like our fan page, because it helps with my low self-esteem. And sign up for our Patreon subscription, where uh, for just $10 a month, you'll get a full episode of Improv Nerd, a video episode of Improv Nerd. And you'll also get a teaching, a master teaching improv lesson that will make you a better improv teacher. Also, go to our YouTube channel. YouTube channel is Improv Nerd Podcast, all one word. And you'll see clips, video clips from uh, our shows, our Improv Nerd shows. And of course, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run.